Welcome, welcome my friends to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Uh, as you probably know, even though I'm a lawyer and it's called Is That Really Legal? Uh, the reason it's called Is That Really Legal? is because I talk about just about everything except law stuff. A lot of showbiz, a lot of publishing, I'm especially enjoying having women, people of color, LGBTQ people on to give a platform to people who don't always get a platform. One such person who really deserves to be heard is Zoe Archer. Zoe is a romance novelist who writes fun, uh, high heat, uh, 80s inspired romances, even though they're actually set not in the 1980s. For instance, the newest one that's coming out is called Waiting for a Scott Like You. Uh, when I say 80s inspired, um, I'm talking about uh, 80s music. We certainly talk about that, her love for Duran Duran. We talk about us both growing up Jewish. And even though we are not religious Jews, we're definitely cultural Jews. And we talk about food and our common experiences culturally. Um, baked goods, why you may not know what a real black and white cookie is and why you should learn. Um, so we talk about those things. Uh, if you want to ask me questions about Zoe or the podcast or anything, frankly, uh, go to isthatreallylegal.com. You can uh, message me there. Um, speaking of baked goods, why don't you grab some Abe's muffins? They are allergen free. They taste great. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to say they make fantastic brownies, but I think it's time to try to get them to make black and white cookies. Come on, Abe's. I mean, I would buy them. Uh, but without any further ado, please enjoy Zoe Archer. Zoe Archer, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Thank you very much. Um, as uh, I'll probably say in the intro, I've known you, actually, it could be 20 years ago that we met at a writer's conference. I have a memory, a strong memory. I used to work for a New York Times bestselling author before I became an agent. I was sort of her lawyer and business manager and then VP of her production company, Suzanne Brockman. And we were all oh, yeah. at a conference. Mm -hmm. And we've been at conferences together for years when I used to do the right. conferences. And we can all imagine a time before COVID when we actually went to in-person conferences, like right. Romantic Times, Romant uh, sure. RWA. Yeah. And so you, were, you and your husband were a presence at those conferences. And yes. so, I, I don't know, it, you know, after a few dozen conferences, you tend to recognize the same people, you start right. a conversation. <laughs> Sure. And yeah, so I've, but I really feel like I've gotten to know you more over the last several years on Twitter. Right. Well, that's been one of the innovations of social media is that in some ways I know that there are, it has its detractors and it certainly can be used harmfully. And also it has been able to forge um, connections and friendships with people that perhaps we wouldn't have been able to do because of the uh, exigencies of travel, you know what I mean? Like we get to actually hang out and communicate and talk and stuff like that online in ways that we never would have been able to in person. It's not nearly as fiscally prohibitive for one thing. Uh, I know that you're smart and you're a writer because you use the word exigencies. So we're already off to <laughs> SAT start. Yeah. Nice. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, by the way, there's nothing shameful about being educated, literate, eloquent. I'm a fan of those things uh, because God knows my parents paid a lot of money for my education. Uh, <laughs> I um, paid a lot of money for my education because I only recently stopped paying my students. I finished paying my student loans. So um, a lot of that came out of my pocket. But yeah, I, I, I was uh, I'm a little overeducated. Yeah, my parents paid for my undergrad. I paid for my grad law nice. degree. Um, not that anyone cares, but there you go. Um, also, <laughs> because you and I live on opposite coasts. Yes, that's true. Um, now, you're originally from California, too. Well, I was uh, I am from California. I was actually born in New York. My family are all New Yorkers. Yes. Uh, um, my family... That explains a yes. lot to me. And <laughs> I know people, all, people won't necessarily understand it. You, I, I, so, uh, you know, everybody's heard that expression, gaydar, which I think I have very good gaydar. And I think I have excellent judar. Oh, which... my, yeah. My mom calls it Jewish geography, like, because she has, a, she's, she's from the Bronx. My father's from the Bronx. That's where my family's from. I was born in Long Island. My brother was born in Queens. And whenever my mom meets somebody from New York, they immediately start talking about, did you go to PS such and such? Or did you, you know what I mean? And they'll start narrowing down with this kind of, razor-like precision exactly where in the the boroughs they were from right I, I i have we have that too but i even like i can tell across the room that person's jewish and it's not a great <laughs> trait that i see it's not a trait i want to see in right-wing political people i right. don't like that they can no. But from my own being a member of the tribe, I just feel well, like, like people vibrate at a certain frequency. Like recognizes like, and there's a certain amount of wary cynicism combined with humor, I think, that a lot of East Coast Jews seem to have. That's a description I could agree, agree <laughs> with, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, my folks are from the Bronx, and I grew oh, up on nice. Long Island. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's a quality about the way you speak. I'm not saying you have a accent of any kind. There's just a quality in the in your tweets and your way of being that mm. I feel is easy to match up with for me. There's a rhythm, I think, to a lot of like Ashkenazi, Eastern European, New York Jews and the way that they speak and the way that they implement language. And I think that, you know, there's certain kinds of cultural characteristics because I don't really I don't, I'm not a practicing Jew. But, um, you know, I'm super in like, you know, and I did the DNA testing and I'm literally 100 percent Jewish. Same. So. <laughs> I did the exact same thing. And same. Yes. Yeah. I was like 98.1 percent Ashkenazi and the rest was Sephardic. So I was like, wow. But I like my husband, who was a Gentile, like he'll ask me questions about Judaism. And I'm like, hmm. So it's like I'm I'm not a very good Jewish person. Pra like practitioner of Judaism, but like I culturally identify as such. And so um, there's a lot of aspects about like that, that, that sort of specific nexus of cultural identity that comes from being a Jew, a Jewish person from New York, I think, and the East Coast that like we kind of like can lock into each other and we're like, nah. And there's like, you know, I, I hate to say it's a cabal because I would never implement that kind of language, but we definitely, you know, like when we find each other, we gravitate towards each other. Yeah, I I would have to agree, and our tell our our conversations start to become about similar things. We just have a mm -hmm. there might be similar senses of humor, uh, similar reading lists. You sure, know, it's just uh, qualities. It's almost like we all went to high school together. I'm not <laughs> asking your age, but um, no. Did you? <laughs> when did you guys go out west? How old were you when that happened? I was an infant. I was six months old. 
Um, so I was raised with a very New York sensibility, but in Los Angeles. So, and so I grew up in LA and also Santa Monica. Um, so I have that kind of dual bi-coastal sort of approach to Judaism in certain ways. I grew up with a lot of Jewish people, which, um, because of where I'm from. Um, so it felt very, that was a sort of a comfortable space for me to like to inhabit, which I know that people who grow up in other parts of the country don't necessarily have the same experience. Right. You know, I have two uh, cousins who are producers who live in LA, who live mm -hmm. in, the in the canyon. canyons, mm -hmm. like the Hollywood There are many canyons. canyons. There are many canyons. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to say the name, but they both have <laughs> Emmys and they're big deals. Sure. And, sure. Um, but they still sound like Forest Hills. Which is where they grew up, <laughs> and uh, one especially did well. Um, Claudia Katz, I'll just drop her name. Uh, uh -huh. She started her career in advertising, worked with Matt Groening, who mm, really wow. liked. Yeah, he liked her on the Bart Simpson Butterfinger campaign. Yeah, sure. So she ended up producing Futurama. Wow. And uh, also this new thing that he has, which a lot of people haven't talked about, called Disenchanted, which mm. I think is hysterical. It's kind mm -hmm. of a Futurama meets Game of Thrones kind nice. of thing. Nice. But, nice. but yeah. what I notice is um, every time I go to LA, I have a great time. And I have, besides them, I have other friends in LA uh, who live, you know, near the water. And there's just, it's a different, it is as many jokes as we want to say, it's a completely different world, LA and New York. But I think you can like both. What Absolutely. do you think? I mean, I don't live in Los Angeles anymore. I moved away um, and I now live um, in Santa Barbara County because um, I lived in Los Angeles for most of my life. And it was becoming in some ways sort of physically and economically untenable to be there anymore, um, which is a little frustrating because if you grow up there and then you kind of, you know, like there's certain things that kind of edge you out, which I know is an experience that a lot of people are having. Especially, I'm in Brooklyn and I get looks from the people who've lived here. I, it's not my fault. There are now movie stars living here. And my right. wife and I can, I'm not calling myself a movie star. I'm just saying my wife right. bought a condo here years ago. We're able to stay, but there are some people mm -hmm. who can't because the prices right. are insane. Yeah. Right. And I mean, like we obviously are seeing that on a huge and impactful level in terms of um, gentrification and things like that. And so it's like, it's just expanding and expanding. But as far as like, um, I often, I, my father, my parents split up when I was very young. And then my father, when I was about 12 years old, moved back to New York. And so I would, um, and I also had relatives who lived there and stuff. So I would go to New York pretty regularly. And um, I always, there's something about that. I don't think I could ever live in New York, um, but I really like to be there. I really enjoy the city. And whenever I would, whenever RWA would go back to New York and I was walking around and I just sort of felt like there was this, um, really sort of sell memory as to like what that sort of environment is like. And I felt sort of energized and excited and, um, and I just really loved, uh, and I hope to go back at some point someday, you know, and I just really like, like to be in New York. Um, and I, you know, the funny thing is that I've never been to Brooklyn, so I would really love wow. to explore Brooklyn. Well, two, two things first, just so for people who may not know, RWA is the Romance Writers of America. It's oh, a, right. a big association, and that's a whole conversation we may get into later because right. it was fraught with political intrigue and sure. did, shouldn't be, shouldn't have been, but that's a conversation. And then uh, 
the other thing is I agree with you on that cellular memory thing, like the DNA, only because I love living in Brooklyn. Even though I grew up on the island, my relatives first settled here before mm. my parents, you know, my grandparents. And I've been to parts of Germany and there's one particular city where I feel quite at home. And mm. I found out that part of my family was from there. That's and that's really just strange. Yeah. Yeah, that's re that's really interesting. I'd be curious to if I ever visited um, you know, uh Galicia, you know, the sort of like parts of Poland and Russia, which is where my family is from, I'd be very curious uh to sort of experience that kind of that place and see if there was a part of me that recognized it, you know. Right. Um I want to transition into you know, a lot of times when I speak with writers or artists or musicians, they felt like, oh, since I was six, I just wanted to do this. I, you know, well, I used to write, like, for instance, Suze, I, I happen to know, would write Star Trek fan fiction in high school mm. instead of doing biology or something like that. So is that a similar story for you as a writer? Like, were you a writer early? Yes, that's exactly my story. I mean, I pretty much started, I learned how, my mother was a uh, preschool teacher uh, back then, and she taught me how to read. I think I was probably about four years old. And it was not soon after that I started telling stories. And, and then once I became actually functionally literate, I would write my own story. So I was writing like in elementary school. And, um, you know, that's funny that you mentioned that Suzanne Brockman was writing Star Trek fan fiction because in elementary school, I was writing what I didn't know was called fan fiction, but I was writing fan fiction about Duran Duran. So that's some of my, yeah, seriously. So that's some of my early entree into narrative. And so what, what that for me was a lot about was sort of like, because I am an ex and I was raised by television predominantly because both my parents worked. Um, I watched a lot of cable television and part of that included music videos. And so I would engage with these narratives that I would see, and then I would expand upon them and then write them up for my friends and stuff like that. So they were, that was kind of part of my, and I was probably around 11 years old, 10 or 11, 12 when I was doing that. So it was just like, and, and then I was introduced to romance in high school by a friend of mine. And, um, and that was sort of like, that helped sort of direct my path in terms of what part of what I wanted to do. Cause I was also writing, I guess what you'd call for lack of a better term, literary fiction, but like romance was like, that was always something in the back of my mind. Once That's, I, once I discovered, once I learned about it, I should say. Well, I can now tell our age differences because MTV came out when I was in college. And when oh. <laughs> you said Duran Duran, uh, my memories are immediately, I heard the opening chords to the song Rio. And right, I sure. see I see the video in front of me of this like hot chick uh, mm -hmm. and, and this giant boat as the members right. of Duran Duran go, you know, in the Caribbean, I'm guessing. And then also probably my favorite Duran Duran song, Girls on Film. I oh, just I mean, that video that. was like, yeah. And especially the alternate edition of that uh, music video, I'm sure it could be extremely, uh, which is a little, a little more mature in its content. Um, uh, I think that could definitely be, um, that could imprint on somebody, <laughs> you know. I mean, I was like, 18, well, thing, 19. Um, yeah. I was uh, a guy and all, I was totally ripe for being imprinted upon in that right. way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it the was sort means of. means a lot at that point, yeah. 
Yeah. And then add alcohol and other things to the mix. I mean, sure, sure. Just other things. We'll just leave that sort of open. Sure. But I, I, I love that you're talking about different genres. So for some of our readers, you know, they know all of the stuff. I'm, readers? Wow. Listeners, Listeners? excuse me. Thank mm-hmm. you. I know, it's called podcasting, Eric. Um, and uh, so for people who don't know, um, when you say literary fiction or genre fiction, um, you know, genre fiction, as I explain it to people, are things like romance, horror, sci-fi. These are all genres. Literary fiction, sometimes people think of as highfalutin fiction, <laughs> like Moby Dick or, you know, whatever right. wins the Booker Prize or that sure, kind of sure. stuff. Um, and and I, I learned through my work with Susan then as a literary agent, the incredible, incredible prejudices that writers have to face in their art and their craft when they work in genre fiction. Of course, romance being the, you know, the untouchable cast for many, but you and I know different. And what I mean to say that is I learned uh, quite in the trenches um, and by reading a lot of it as a guy on the subway with my the pages turned so nobody could see the cover. Sure, the sure. E-book, um, you know, romance, first of all, makes a ton of money for publishing as an industry, even today. And mm-hmm. it is uh, eye-opening when people do the surveys and we find out how many people read romance? What is the educa- educational level of people who read and write romance? You know, we're talking a lot about postdoc people. We're talking about, and the types of romance, people don't understand the subgenres within romance. Is it sweet? Is it hot? Is it a particular right. period of time? Is it right. science fiction? So I, I feel like it's not our job, at least within this very short period of time, to educate people of a whole large uh the, the wide, wide world of romance and of genre fiction, but maybe people will understand it when you and I talk about what it is that you do in your writing. So sure. when you started romance, mm-hmm. did you know, were you immediately drawn to your particular subgenre, or did you do an investigation and what did that involve? Well, so the, the romances that I was reading were predominantly historical. And I think that's what my friend's mother, who she got her books from, read the most. Um, I read only if, a few contemporaries, actually. Um, That's so pre-e-readers, right? This is pre-ebook. Oh yeah, this is this is deep in the eighties. So um, this no such thing existed at the time. So we were reading like actual, we were reading physical printed books and things like that. And I literally read them in class under my desk, fooling nobody. <laughs> I'm sure because because I've been a teacher and I know what it looks like when somebody isn't paying attention. Uh, Sorry, I'm laughing because it's funny. So that's what, yeah, that's what happened. So, um, yeah, I like historical romance was um, always the genre that I had, the subgenre, I should say, that I was most interested in. Um, and um, this was the era in which I think the sort of the derogatory term bodice ripper was coined because it did entail a lot of what is known as sort of the forced seduction or the punishing kiss or things like that, that where consent was a little bit more uh, dubious the power dynamics were a little more uh, unbalanced and things like that. And um, not in all of the books, but in some of them, and especially in historicals, I think, because, uh, you know, I think they like, there was that the 
the historical, what people believed was the, was the discrepancy in power between um, cisgendered men and women um, at that I just, point. Can I just interrupt for a second? You know, yeah, yeah. at that time in the entire culture, there was at best confusion about what consent was. And I remember specifically General Hospital, which kids, I don't know if it still exists, was a uh, soap still opera on. at the time. It's okay, still so, on, yeah. Um, it had a very earth-shattering storyline between two characters named Luke and Laura. Yep. And they got together because, and I can't believe I'm saying this now, he raped her. Yep. And then, again, I can't believe I'm saying this, they fell in love. And ended right. up the, together. the marriage of Luke and Laura was like a media event. And it's a very, you know, looking back now, it's a little like, I'm sure we look medically like, oh, they used to do bloodletting. Right. And, <laughs> and now we have medicine. And right. I look back, but, you know, I'm not talking about the 1880s. I'm talking about the 1980s. And it's just very strange. You know, to me, I can't imagine uh, as a woman who's writing this stuff and consuming it, what it must have been like to live through that or or did or were you just a, a fish in water and didn't see the power dynamics for what they were I, at that time you know what i feel like it was a combination of things there were certain things um that i was aware of and certain things i was not aware of first of all i was aware that there were power dynamic discrepancies because i remember being angry a lot about aspects of these books but yet there was something about them that i kept returning to you know like i wasn't so put off by these components that I was like, I'm never reading this again. There was something about it that I really liked. And I think that was like, in my hubris, I was like, well, I'm going to do it in my way. And so I started writing romance novels pretty soon after I started reading romance novels. Um, so that's like, I'm talking about like early drafts for like things in high school. And um, I've said this before, but one of my, like the very first romance novel I started, I never finished it, but it was about a woman who was a, pi a pirate ship captain. She captained her own pirate ship and the hero was some kind of wealthy aristocrat. She captures his ship and sells him into indentured servitude. So that kind of gives you an idea as to like what my notion of gender dynamic, like power dynamics was at that time. So I was already uh in that mode where i was trying to remedy or or make alterations to fit a um a worldview that i was starting to push back against um and you know i've been writing this series of historical romances which is influenced by and i say not an homage but i say influenced by 1980s films um, and I watched these films in preparation for writing this series. And I was pretty horrified by a lot of this, the messaging within them. And, um, and I did not recognize a lot of the problematic content at that time. So at some point, there's a part of me that didn't recognize it. And there's a part of me that did. So it was sort of like an ongoing evolutionary process. Sounds like you, like the rest of us, were growing up with it and learning and going through an evolution of your own while the culture at large was going through an evolution. It was, and you know, I'm, I, I like to think that I'm still undergoing that evolutionary process and I'm still like trying to un, unpack a lot of the damaging messages that I received in terms of a lot of aspects of identity, you know, and, and culture and sociopolitical things like that. So it's, it's a, like, that's what I, like, it's like, I never want to get to a point in my life where I'm like, yep, I've got it. You know, because I always want to know, you know, I always want to interrogate what I, what people are, what messages I'm receiving. 
You know, it seems to me that the thoughtful people who really shouldn't worry if they're doing okay with the the journey are all like you are always the ones who are extra cautious that they don't you know that they're keeping up to date taking care of everybody around them where there are other people who are sort of like a bull in a china shop you know like right. i got this <laughs> just wreaking havoc right. Uh, I, you know. Yeah, I definitely, yeah, definitely don't want to get to a point where I feel like I understand everything or I don't want to learn or I, you know, one of the things that I'm really trying to come to grips with is understanding when I've made a mistake and how to own that mistake, you know, because I think in that, I think we've, we've observed many different ways in which somebody can handle their uh, transgressions and whether or not that actually helps to heal the person that they've harmed um, or if they're just trying to defend themselves. So it's like that is a that is definitely a process which I think is sort of um, something which is continuing to unfold. Yeah, you know, social media is a place where you see that played out so dramatically. And also it's a very educational tool because I, I'll speak for myself, an earlier podcast featured a friend of mine named Lenore, she's a woman of color. And I had at one point tweeted something about uh, Serena Williams, when she had lost um, and lost a point because of uh, objecting on court. And mm -hmm. I, um, she said, Eric, you need to take that down and you need to talk to me. <laughs> she said, you don't, <laughs> you don't understand what you're writing. And I'm glad, because, I'm glad that she was willing to put herself out there like that to do that. Yeah. Which, and I'm glad that uh, number one, I, I apologized. I've, issue, you know, we don't need to go through it all. And I got educated sure. and I understand where I was coming from and what I wasn't understanding. And I sure. had an honest conversation with the person that I love who I heard with, the, you know, listening. The right. People should really try that listening thing. And when it's, I say it's, listen, it's all the cool kids are doing it. <laughs> right. And, and listening doesn't mean hearing or waiting for your turn to speak. Listening is hearing it from somebody else's point of view without your own judgments. And sure. I really heard her. And then, you know, part of why I do this podcast, and it, if you look back at the guests I've had, it's predominantly women, people of color, queer people. It, it's because I see the need, you know, people might tune in because, oh, it's Eric Rubin, he's a lawyer and he was a literary agent, for whatever reason. So I have a platform and, uh, I'm not pretending it's huge, but if somebody gets to hear somebody they wouldn't have heard, that's great from my point of view. Right. Um, so, um, you know, don't pin a medal on the anything. But I've seen the other, I've seen the other side. You know, when there were the Black Lives Matters protests, I don't want to talk about a person name them, but somebody in the literary community, probably more than one, did certain things was advised why it was a bad thing to do and then got into a whole series of tweets where they defended their position then right. hired a lawyer and basically lost their business they certainly lost clients they lost people employees and this person you know i'm not going to get on a bandwagon and say this person's a terrible person i know this person from working doing some work with them i think they just didn't see and they weren't willing to listen and that made a big difference. Okay. Um, I, I also think that people are, are angry, uh, but you know what? It's, it's, if you're listening, you can understand why people are angry. 
Uh, I saw, I was lucky enough to see Dave. Do you like Dave Chappelle? Did you see his? Yeah. yeah. He did oh, a yeah. special that was like only eight minutes long or something. It's specifically as long as the gentleman was being kneeled on before he died. Uh, and it was very powerful because he listed all of these people of color who've been murdered by police or vigilantes and just like listed it. And I was like, I hadn't thought about the sheer volume, the weight of that on a collective psyche of people. And, you know, uh, it's just, of course, like, I mean, uh, anyway, we're getting far. We listen. That's, that's our job is to listen. Well, and, you know, as an artist, I feel like you do what a great artist should do, which is you then put that into your work. And you did from your first romance. And I would read the crap out of a woman pirate story, especially especially because I know that you write some very hot stuff or steamy stuff. And I can imagine uh, a woman pirate capturing a wealthy guy and how they could go absolutely perfect (laughs) from my point of view. I don't want to reveal too much about me, but I think it would be an interesting read. Well, when I first drafted that book, my experience was not commensurate with what I was reading, <laughs> my personal experience. It's changed since then. Um, but I mean, I do try, like, again, it's, it's, I try as much as I can to um, um, embody my own personal beliefs in the work that I produce. It's not, it's not unconscious and it's growing more and more uh, in, intentional with every book that I write. So um, I always have you know, attempted to, whether or not I'm successful is, you know, that's for the reader to determine. But I, like, I don't go into it with um, just sort of like trying to spin a yarn. That's not my intention. Well, I I know you have had tremendous success. I'm not shining you up. It's just accurate. One series that you have is at, I think my favorite publisher, I'm just going to say it, that I ever dealt with, which is Avon, which Mm -hmm. um, is HarperCollins, an imprint of HarperCollins. They have lovely offices downtown near where my office is. Um, They're beautiful offices. (laughs) And they have great editors, um, in my experience. Uh, Lucia, I'm I'm blanking. It's been a while. Um, I don't know who your editor is. You don't have to tell anybody if you don't want to. But Mm -hmm. I I find that they know romance really well there. Um, in my experience, I assume you're still writing with them. Did I just, I am, and I am still writing with them. I've just started, uh, I'm midway through the first book in a new series for them. And that'll be my fourth contract with them. My editor is Nicole Fisher. Um, and, um, Nicole is one of my toughest editors, but she also really knows her stuff. And she, she never just says make it better and then steps back. She gives me very detailed and complicated, like, and sort of involved, uh, developmental editor letters that um, say like, well, what if we try that? Or what if we try that? Rather than just sort of like, you know, issuing a command from on high, like fix this. And then she kind of goes away. So it's a challenging process. I do not care for the revision process. And it is absolutely 100% essential. I have two things that I'd like to chime in with that. Number one is there's an old adage that some people find tired, but it is absolutely true. Writing is editing. Um, that's number one. Number two, for people who don't know writing so much, but know music very well, a great editor is like a great producer on an album. They can see the artist much like a great producer can see an artist. They can listen to the band or the person singing, hear them play their music and go, 
that's great, but that should be faster or slower, or that's not really a ballad, or have you thought about just doing one piano by itself with you singing? Um, I watch a lot of documentaries, especially about music. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a woman named Linda Perry, who's a fantastic record producer. Mm -hmm. And she produced Christina Aguilera for that mm -hmm. song, um, You Are Beautiful, or I can't. Oh, Beautiful, just, yeah. yeah. And it's a just a piano and Christina, and that's it. And the way she talks about how she produced that and how Christina wanted to keep doing it to make it perfect and how she stopped her from doing it. And how she said, right. no, that's the per it's perfect with its imperfections in it. Right, right. Because she has the ear for that. And I think a right. good editor has good eyes and ears for your book. Would you say that's a good analogy? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I have been in this industry now for quite some time. Um, it's kind of shocking because uh, like my first published book came out in 2006. So this is my 15th year as a published author. Congrats. And I have gone through it. I have pivoted so many times. Um, you introduced me as Zoe Archer, but my current contract I write for Avon now is Ava Lee. Um, so I and um, so I've had to change my name even as I've gone through this process. So I've I've worked with many editors. I've experienced many different editorial styles. Some are a little handsy. Some are almost <laughs> negligent in terms of how much they give you. Some are exceptionally handsy um, and sometimes arbitrarily so. But at where I am right now, I feel like um, I've, I've hit this sort of sweet spot. I, I dread getting my revision letters because I know that they're going to be extensive. And I also know that the, at the end of the day, it's to make my book better. And I trust my editor's judgment when it comes to things. And she's like, if you don't agree with this, it's okay, let me know. Um, so it is a dialogue. Um, but um, I understand also that like, she's trying to, she's trying to take the clay and shape it even more or like, you know, like the, 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 the figure that lives inside the marble, like I've blocked it out. And then she comes in and helps me with the sanding. Oh, wow. I was just, I, before the pandemic, Last year in October, my wife and I went to Florence and we saw mm -hmm. quite a bit of sculpture. And mm -hmm. so I just I just flashed on a few while you said that. Um, well, I think it's like Michelangelo's like he has like a slave series and some of them, they're still sort of emerging from the marble. Exactly what I, I swear to God, that's exactly what I was thinking of. It's in the same museum that the David, the original David is in. Yeah. And um for people, when we get to travel again, I, I know everybody goes to Florence, but there's a reason because it's freaking beautiful and the food is ridiculous. And we can talk. There's also, uh, yeah. there's also a really good science um, uh, museum in Florence that has like Galileo's telescopes and things like that. Wow. So if you ever we, we check that out because Nico, my husband, is a huge is really into technology and the evolution of technology so we check that out so if you're in if you're in florence um it's not like a, a big like splashy museum but it's got some really incredible objects in it well now as if we needed another reason to go back uh holly's cousins live half the year in florence a uh, half oh, in wow. colorado we were supposed to be in durango uh at the end of the year but well we know that didn't oh. work out we're not flying i don't understand people who are like yeah i'm gonna fly anyway i Okay. Uh, anyway, okay. <laughs> I, I have a, a question then. So we're talking about the art of writing and the actual writing, but there's also a very strong business aspect of writing. 
Most yes. successful writers end up getting agented, whether they stay that way or not. It may vary. Um, are you currently agented? And I am. Have you had only one agent? Have you gone through several? I have gone through several agents. I've um, this is uh, my current agent is my third agent, as a matter of fact. And so the first agent I had, um, I uh, let go because I felt like she wasn't um, pushing strong enough. I was it was early in my career and I was very ambitious and I felt like we kind of uh, and also the communication lines I like to be communicated with because I'm a very anxious person. And so I like to I like to hear even if nothing's happening, just tell me nothing's happening and then I'll feel better. Um, so I let her go and then I switched to another agent who let me go after a year of submitting my work. And then I found my current agent um, and I've been with her since 2007. So yeah, that's 14 years now, I guess. That's a, a marriage. And when I was an agent, I would tell people that the, the agent writer relationship is a little bit strange because it is like a marriage, but you don't date very long. You kind of find <laughs> out about the other person through people, through whatever research you have, you have one or two coffee lunches, you know, whatever. And then you make a decision based on the work and a limited interaction on the personality level. And you kind of right. hope, at least that was my experience. Would you, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. And I mean, I remember when I was first looking, when I was looking for an agent in 2007, I was also trying to query a literary fiction novel in addition to romance. So I was trying to find an agent who did both. And I remember there was an agent who was interested in me, but he kept negging me. And I was like, I don't really dig this about, what that, you know, and what's negging? when I say negging, like negging is kind of like a term that um, PUAs or pickup artists used in terms oh. of like, when you know what I mean? So like they would sort of subtly um, kind of bring you down so that you felt like whatever kind of positive affirmation they gave you, you would really hook onto because you feel like you would achieve something. It's so amazing, the by the way, I know people who did, I never did this. There are people who did these like pickup artist courses, guys I knew. Sure. And they yeah. talked about these tactics. And I was always like, I, I'm just not crafty enough to remember any of this crap. Like if I meet someone <laughs> I like, I'm just going to like, you know, say the wrong thing, spill my drink and hope for the best. And uh, I think it's fascinating that you are familiar with this stuff. Well, the, the, I mean, the, the thing is that I, uh, I met, Nico before the advent of the codified PUA. And this is obviously before internet dating and stuff. Well, there was like, there's a little bit of internet dating, but it was not uh, something that like was really out there. Um, so a lot of the things about what the dating world is like in terms of like the PUAs and then now with the advent of like apps and things like that, it's like, I totally don't like, I, I try to pick it up from my people that I know who are millennials uh, but I'm just kind of like, it's mystifying. And I, I, I feel like uh, somebody with self-esteem issues would have a, have, it would be very challenging. Do you, do you feel comfortable telling us who your agent is? Yes, my agent is Kevin Lyon of the Lyon Marcel Literary Agency. She started repping me when she was working for Sandra Dykstra. And then she and Jill left Dykstra to start their own agency. And I went with them. Gotcha. And um, well, I think it, I think the fact that you've been with them so long just tells us what the relationship is like. I may eventually start to believe that she's not going to drop me. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is you're, you know, that's a very, at least in my, that's a very New York Jewish experience yeah. too, is that yeah. sort of constantly waiting for the bad thing to happen. 
Yeah, I, I don't maybe know. Maybe it's, it's normal for a lot of people, but that's my experience. I don't know. Well, you know, it's kind of baked into our culture that eventually some shit's going to happen and you've got to be ready for it. And so there's just kind of like this this notion that at some point, something that you really want is not going to happen or it's going to get taken from you. So you have to just be ready for it. There's a there's a song uh, that talks about all the Jewish holidays. Uh, they tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. And right. That's uh, it. it's kind of our background. Uh, yeah. I mean, after all of after all of that, we just want a nice piece of cake. <laughs> right. Uh, maybe a hot meat sandwich of some kind for me. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, cake. for me, it has to be accompanied by a Dr. Brown cream soda and then um, finished with a black and white. <gasps> oh, my God. I love black and whites. I, I, I don't know why people don't like them. I can only assume. All right. So we're going to take a detour and I don't care. Um, they don't. So, they haven't had good black and whites. That's why. That's exactly exactly right. So you, I think you have to first of all, black and whites are called cookies, but they're not cookies. No, they're like a cake. That's just they're flat, little right? cakes. Yeah, yeah. And they're so they're like a sponge cake with a sort of a fondant covering, but the fondant, first of all, the vanilla has to have a certain lemony quality in it. Yep. And the chocolate has to be rich. This can't be waxy. It has to be sugary. And I think that yeah. people who don't know what they're doing put them out and they're fake and wrong. Um, and I they're think dry really, and crumbly. You have to get them at a great diner, maybe, or a great deli, mm -hmm. um, of which we have a bunch here on the East Coast, uh, especially Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island. Sure. Um, that's it. I just, I, I, I'm so happy that you like black and whites. I don't know too many people. Maybe again, that's our shared heritage. When I, when, um, when the Romance Writers of America conference was in New York, it was always held at the Marriott in Times Square and literally across the street was Junior's Deli. And I swear to God, I threw my suitcase into my room and ran to Junior's Deli, like, like within like an hour of getting off the plane because, um, delis especially on the west coast are hard to come by and they're dying off and so um like and i and where i live now there are no jewish delis so like just to be back in that environment just like the smell of all the pastrami combined with the coleslaw and the matzo ball soup and all of that it's like there's this uh, very sort of er kind of like deep intrinsic sort of, well i mean a lot of cultures communicate via food and this is for for jewish people i think food is a huge component of their identity um, my wife is a what i call her my shiksa goddess she grew up in, uh, <laughs> in california and san francisco went to berkeley she's of uh swiss italian irish background and she speaks french fluently um but she's hot. lived she's lived in Brooklyn for over 30 years. So she right. has learned some, what I would call Jewy things and an appreciation mm -hmm. for like, she makes potato pancakes, you know, mm -hmm. she so and she learned how to make matzo ball soup because she wanted mm -hmm. to. I never said, I need you to do this. That's like the last thing I ever needed anybody to do, but she got really into it. Nico is half Greek and half Italian, and he grew up in Los Angeles and in the entertainment industry. So as you can imagine, he knew a lot of Jewish people in his in his life. And um, because he has a Jewish wife and because he likes to bake, he's made me the best challah. That's it's so good. So uh, we're, people yeah. should follow you on Twitter just because of the pictures of Nico's breads. 
Um, yes, and he, his breads and his books, they're both excellent. Well, let's talk about Nico for a minute, because um, when I first yes. met him, I'll be honest, he scared the crap out of me. He had this intensity <laughs> about him, which is that Greek, um, there's a certain Greek, I, I look, I, this is terribly stereotypical prejudice. You, you know, write to me at uh, isthatreallylegal.com, go to the website, you can complain about my point. But he had this look about him, and it might have been he didn't understand who I was and why I was talking to you. Um, and I don't blame him for being protective because, you know, of course. But um, right. uh, so he had a sort of intensity that I bet yes. he does have in real life. But yeah. he clearly is a gifted writer, a sweet guy and a good husband, because like your agent, you've had him for a long time, too, right? Yes, that's right. And if you're interested in checking out his books, his name is Nico Rosso, and he um, you should definitely give his books a read because they he he writes romance and they're uh, phenomenal books. He was nominated for a Rita for for one of them, um, and um, and there is a Greek intensity that you are not mistaken about. I knew his mother, and and there's a there's a a strong um, tragic element that just sort of runs through Greek culture that I've observed. And so I think that kind of, um, and I think from talking to him and what he said about like, you know, Zorba, like the whole point of being like Opa and dancing is because tragedy is everywhere. Well, we're very and similar the to these Mediterranean, Semitic kind of. I think that's why we get along so well is because he does have like the, the Mediterranean culture and uh, particularly Ashkenazi Jews, I don't know, I can't speak to, uh, to a Sephardic culture, have that component. And so I think we recognize that we like, we want to eat and we're sitting and we sob a lot. And it's just kind of like the things, these are the things that we share. You know, I, I did an off-Broadway show when I was a professional actor in several incarnations while I was in development called Opa. And I played a Greek Orthodox priest, um, which mm. is really funny to me, but I met a lot of great Greek actors um, and mm. some Turkish actors too, who played Greek. Yeah. And, you know. Right. But it's the same as, you know, there are Arab actors who play Jewish and vice versa, um, sure. because we're all, you know, that's the thing about those rivalries is that they're so intense because we're actually brothers or sisters. That's what makes and it we're right more crazy. To, we're right next to each other. So it's kind of like, you know, the way that you and your siblings are just like, get the fuck out of my space, you know, but then it's kind of. Um, I don't mean to trivialize these things, but I think that it's, this is this component of a shared space that becomes um, both a place where we can connect and also divisive, you know. No, and I don't think you're trivializing it. I think there is a, there are some very basic elements at work. And this is not a foreign policy podcast, so we won't get into the intricacies. Oh, I, of, I'm so I'm not worried in about foreign that. policy. Ask, ask me anything. I'm so I'm so knowledgeable. Well, you would be more knowledgeable, you'd be more knowledgeable than many people currently in those positions. Um, We're taping this um, days before our new president takes office. This is not a political podcast, but uh, it's been a crazy time. Um, When we're taping this, it's literally a week after lunatic Nazis stormed the Congress, stormed the Capitol building. I don't have a problem saying it. Because, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I don't think a lot of MAGA people are listening to my podcast, nor do I care. 
Um, but do you're you... not listening to Eric Rubin, attorney at law? <laughs> well, there's a couple of clues as you know, besides the terrible <laughs> things they've already written to me on Twitter. Um, uh, I have been called names that I'm not going to repeat. I've blocked a lot of people these four years. Have you mm. run into any of that stuff? A little bit, you know, maybe, uh, maybe that it speaks to the, my modest platform that I haven't been the, t I mean, I get like bots and, and things like that, but I haven't gotten a lot of like anti-Semitic or, um, you know, sort of MAGA people coming at me. Um, so part of me is like, whoo, dodge that bullet. And then I'm like, hey, <laughs> don't you want to listen to me too? So, um, but um, I mean, I know that like within the, especially in the romance community, there is, there's been, um, we're struggling to write in the middle of these past four years have been so horrendous. Um, and then trying to find the kernel of hope and joy, which is what is the essence of romance and then working within that. And then I've been writing, you know, I, I couldn't write last Wednesday, but like trying to write after seeing people wearing anti-Semitic clothing in our nation's capital, it's definitely, it's, it's very, very hard. Look, I'm just going to um, be I'm straight. Not saying, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting you, but you know, it's one thing to say they wore anti-Semitic clothing. I just want to say there were sweatshirts that said Camp Auschwitz. Yeah. And, yeah. and there were uh, t-shirts. I saw them. Okay. It's not like I read a report people. I saw them yeah. on the television and there were people who wore t-shirts that there was an acronym, but it meant 6 million wasn't enough. And yeah. I just, um, I, I was heart sick. It's an expression yeah. I've heard older people say that I've never used literally before my life. I was heart sick. So I, 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 I'm, I interrupted you just because you're absolutely right. You're not saying anything wrong. You're not saying it wrong. But I feel like I want people to really get it. If they didn't see that, that's what, what there was. I just want to be as straight as possible about what was there. Yeah. And I tweeted about it because, you know, this sort of like these bleeding cries for bipartisanship and like forgiving and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm like, candidly, fuck that. If you're debating whether or not you want to commit genocide on me and my family and the people, my community, fuck you. I'm not interested in reaching across the aisle and patting your hand. I'm going to slap that hand away and hopefully punch you in the face because that's what you deserve. I've been a defense-related attorney pretty much all my career when it comes to criminal matters, but I'd happily prosecute people in this case. I would have no problem with it. My constitutional law professor was a prosecutor at Nuremberg. And, um, wow. Yeah. Oh, and I feel like that felt so far away from us. But you know, you have to remember, I'm going to give out my age. Okay, I was born in 1961. So my parents, you know, we used to see stuff about World War II on TV. And people have to remember that was 16 years. It ended 16 years before I was born. This stuff is, um, you know, I'm trying to remember what happened 16 years ago today, you know, 20 years ago this year was 9-11. So 9-11 is longer away than the Holocaust was when I was born. I don't know what I'm, I don't know the point of what I'm talking about. I think that you and I are probably having a little PTSD from last week. It was really horrific. Um, but I'm really grateful that we have things like Twitter so that you and I can find each other 
and like minds can go, hey, we're all in this together. We're not going to let this take over. We're going to take care of each other. We also, right. in our work, in our art, we take care of each other. Um, and I, I mean, I know that, you know, I, um, communities find each other. And I know that Jewish romance writers have found each other like over these, like we've, there's always this notion of kind of like being part of the mishpucha, you know, or like the family or like, you know, this kind of like that you're a landsman, which means you kind of come from the same village in a way. And it's like, there's this sort of shared family. Uh, uh, I can only speak to my experience as a Jewish person, but like, I know that we experience that. My father uh, used to travel all over their Central and South America um, to visit uh, law firms. And wherever he went, he met, Jewish people. And it was like, as soon as they learned that he was Jewish, they're like, come in, come in. I'm going to have, you know, come to our Shabbat. Um, we're going to hang out and you're part of the family now. And so Jewish romance, it's a very small subset of the romance community, but we have, many of us have found each other to offer each other support um, and community and sort of, uh, and like understanding our own complicated identity, especially because many of us present as white. So it's like, how do we navigate all of these things in a very complicated world and in a and in a genre that is a very complicated genre? You know, it's it, talking about romance. People took for granted for a long time that because they wrote similar things, they felt the same way. But we were referring right. earlier in the podcast that there had been some craziness in the romance writers of America, and I'm not going to make you recount it for everybody. But there was a strong push by some people to exclude uh, people of color, uh, gay people, um, and they wanted romance to be extremely white and straight. And, and Christian. Uh, yeah, thank you. And um, it was a real fight for the soul of the organization. And I think, well, I, I actually don't know how it played out because I haven't been a part of it. Um, wait, do you know what what's happened with the organization well the rwa is still extant um there's a new president um Lequette, who uh she has been um uh in working with a lot of people to try as i understand it to change the rwa and make it a safe and inclusive space and a space that advocates for all members not just people who adhere to a particular kind of uh um, socioeconomic uh, racial, I, you know, like a particular profile and things like that. Um, a lot of people left. I left the RWA and I'm kind of right now currently just sort of keeping an eye on it to see if it's an organization that I would like to return to. I believe in what at heart I think it could be. And it was sort of, um, I felt ashamed when I learned about what was happening in the RWA because I did not know that it was happening. And I feel like in, in that ignorance, it was almost like tacit approval. And I don't, um, and I want to make sure that people, writers of uh, every writer that, well, who except Nazis, uh, feel comfortable in that space. It's um, funny that you so say that, I, by the way, but there really are Nazi writers. I mean, we saw uh, I can't remember what it was I commented on, but there were some books that involved like uh, maybe it was a Jewish woman spy who fell in love with a Nazi soldier and 
there's like what we, we've been seeing stuff. like redemptive arcs yeah we've been seeing heroes redemptive arcs for nazi heroes and i'm and and uh you know and some of these books even got nominated for the major award in the rwa and when people got wind of that when certain there was like there was outrage justifiable outrage so it's like there's there's a lot it romance i think is not a monolithic identity like just about everything and so there are voices that um uh, oppose things uh, oh my God! What uh, Racheline? Oh, I can't remember her name. Uh, this is sucks, but I'm gonna have to look it up. Okay. Um, but she had she had a really good tweet about the kinds of what happens in romance, and there was sort of like a uh, compliance wing, and then there was a resistance wing in terms of like how it approached social issues. And right. um, it, sidebar, if you look it up, we can we can reference it and her name in this in this in the show notes but it was a very uh, interesting way of like saying that like yes romance can be a social force for change and it can also be a very regressive or static kind of situation right um i know that i'm closing in on our time limit here it goes sure, very sure, fast sure. doesn't it it's first of yeah. all it's great to talk to you um do you, you think look up Nico would be willing to be on the show. Um, I'll talk to him. I, I'm I'm pretty sure he would be excited to talk to you. He's uh, he's a really thoughtful and intelligent guy, obviously. So yeah, <laughs> he's a good people picker. Yeah. Um, are there? Uh, what do you have coming out? I mean, I want to shamelessly plug your next book. Thank you. Yes, I have a book coming out in uh, the end of February called Waiting for a Scott Like You, and it is the third book in my Union of the Rakes um, series, uh, which is inspired by classic 80s movies, and you sort of take it and transpose it into Regency England. So I'm using a lot of the things that the narratives that uh, and music that influenced me in my formative years, um, and then sort of uh, again, I don't want to call it an homage because there's a lot of problematic content in it, but it has a lot to do with my re my relationship to that work, and so um, rather than the work itself. But this it's a fun loving, it's a road trip story that's it's chock full of tropes. It's an older woman, younger man. There's just one bed, like there. It's like uh, it's like a grab bag of '80s references. So um, it's uh, hopefully it'll be a lot of fun, and I think people have been enjoying it so far. Inspired by the Foreigner song. I've been waiting. I won't sing the yes. whole thing because I can't afford it. No, but I mean, yeah. And, and the, the book before that was called Would I Lie to the Duke? So yes, it is uh, ah. inspired. Like the, the title is uh, is definitely inspired by uh, that. And the, the series is called The Union of the Rakes. So um, as you know, Duran Duran is my um, jam and have been. So um, it's been a lot of fun to write. Are you familiar with Libby Cudmore? She is on. Yes. Okay. I think um, she would dig this. I will. I don't know if you're already friends, uh, but and I think I know her on, on social media. Right. Uh, I she's been on the show. Uh, she wrote a murder mystery called The Big Rewind, and she does a lot of. I mean, she's just very much into music stuff, and uh, I think she would really dig this, as would all my listeners. So they should just. Uh, they can order you wherever fine books are sold, right? Exactly. You can find them at independent bookstores, and you can um, you can also find them um, at your um, online and print copies. Um, yeah, you can find them wherever fine 
fine literature can be found. Um, Julie noted, as you may have uh, observed from the saltiness of my language, my books have a very high heat content. My mother yeah. doesn't read them. Ah, uh, gotcha. Well, I mean, your your saltiness is not extraordinarily salty. Um, my question for you Damn is- Damn it, I need what... to work harder at that then. <laughs> so what name will they find that book under? So my these um, books for Avon are written as Ava Lee, that's E-V-A-L-E-I-G-H. Um, and uh, yeah, you can find them online. Now, if people want to follow you on Twitter, uh, how would they do that? On Twitter, I'm Zoe underscore Archer. And um, on Instagram, I'm at Zoe Archer 73. And that's the fact that I'm Zoe Archer because that's the name I started with. And then I've, I've since transitioned. And if you are um, in the publishing, if you're thinking about writing and you're thinking about getting another pen name, if you can avoid it, do so. If like try to keep your branding consistent because it's it's very challenging to manage numerous social media accounts. And then a lot of times people don't know who you are and stuff. So if you're writing like high heat something and then like middle grade, then yes, get another pen name. But if if it's if you don't have to get another pen name, then I wouldn't advise it. Right. You you definitely don't want people who've been uh, reading your middle grade stuff uh, to give their kid one of your high heat books, and then you get one of those letters. <laughs> well, I mean, and sometimes at the RWA big uh, literacy signing that they would do every year at the conference, sometimes um, uh, people would attend with their adolescent children. And I'm like, and they kind of wander over to my booth and I'm like, hey, you know, I was your age when I was reading stuff like this, but I want to make sure that we're all, you know, everything's kosher here. Right. Just because you were sneaking it doesn't mean you condone it for other people. Yeah, do as I say, not as I do. I'm, I'm, I'm hypocritical that way. Just go ahead. <laughs> I think that's a perfect note to end on. Zoe Archer, thank you so much for being on. Is that really legal? Really great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I had a really good time, as evidenced by the amount of sidebars and, and tangents that we took. I enjoyed this quite a bit. Zoe Archer, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for listening. Um, hey, look, if you didn't have fun with that, I don't know what to say. I mean, she's fun, I'm fun. If you did have fun with it, though, let me know. You can go to isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a message. You can also give me ideas for future guests, um, which I would greatly appreciate. You can also tell me about how much you love Abe's muffins. They're allergen-free, taste great, come in a lot of different flavors, and they are available all over. So grab some, put them in your face. Thanks for listening. I uh, look forward to hearing from you and bringing you another show next week. Have a great one. Bye-bye.